0: Howdy, everybody. How are y'all going tonight? Excellent. Guys, first off, uh, I just want to say thank you all so much for coming out tonight. It means the world to me and to these guys who uh, have come some pretty far distances to uh, come present to you tonight. So thanks for that. Um, We'll get on to the presentation shortly. Uh, First thing first, uh, we're going to have a couple presenters. We're going to have... Our first presenter, I'll bring her up in just a moment. Um, She helps run a lot of our local volunteer-based coastline management and uh, cleanup days, and she does a whole bunch of really awesome work um, in the conservation space. And um, yeah, so please uh, give a big round of applause for Karen McEwen from Lower Air Coast Care.
1: First off, thanks, Manny. <laughs> thank you. Got it? Right, um, thank you. Um, he really sold me big, so I'm really extra nervous now. Um, so, Manny invited me to come along tonight, and I neglected to tell Manny that I'm actually not a great public speaker. <laughs> so, Bear with me, but what I am is passionate about the environment and in particular about com- community involvement in conservation projects. So hopefully you'll take away from this talk my passion for the, p- the work that we're doing here and forget about my delivery. Um, in trying to help me out, someone said to me this week, um, don't you imagine that the audience is nude and, and it kind of takes, they don't seem so intimidating. But I know quite a lot of you here, and I actually find that very. So I'm not thinking about that. Um, but what I am thinking about is that probably a large percentage of you also hate, would hate to be up here do or, doing what I'm doing. And so just go with me. So. Um, For as much for me, um, just so I can take a moment, um, I just want you to take a moment and think about what it is about the coast and the environment, the marine environment of Air Peninsula and around Lower Air Peninsula in particular, that does it for you. You know, is it fishing, surfing, a quiet place, whatever, what is it? Just take a moment and at the same time think about what can you or are you doing to actually ensure that that is around for the future. So, um, the group I represent is the Lower Area Coast Care Association. And hands up, has anyone not heard of this group? I'm speechless. <laughs> there was no, no show of hands there, so um, my job is partly done. But what you might not know is that we're, we're about to celebrate our 25th year. Um, and it's it's really here now because the group kind of got together. And the group uh, did get together back at a time when um, coast care groups were, uh, all got together around the country following on from the land care movement. And um, a lot of them, 25 years on, have, they don't exist anymore. So I think it's it's amazing that, you know, there's been some lean times, as, you know, anyone in a volunteer group will know, you know. Um, volunteers are hard to find on the ground sometimes. But I think it's also <laughs> part that the coastal marine environment plays such a big part in all our lives here and that, you know, that the group has managed to survive. Um, and I just want to look back to that early start 25 years ago. Um, I thought one of our members who was there then might have been here tonight, but he's not. But um, importantly, um, when the group was um, set up then, it, it acted as an umbrella structure for a lot of little groups that came together at that time to undertake works around the coast. Um, so. The group, our group, provided um, an incorporated body that enabled other people to not have to worry about all the bureaucratic bullshit and just get on with what people want to do in caring for their coasts. And at that time, um, you know, there was things like the original stairs at Coles Point were done, the stairs at Fishery Bay, there was a Friends of Fishery Bay at that time, works in Louth Bay, Drummond, you know, there was a lot of uh, fencing work to protect vegetation and things. So I think, oh, and indeed, uh, younger people, and uh, if you weren't around then, may not realise now that if you drive from Farm Beach to Gallipoli, that vegetation along there was predominantly planted by this group, and it's now a self-sustaining vegetation um, environment. But, yeah, hard-going planting there. So And and that structure is important because um, you'll see that that's kind of looking back to the future. Um, And in between years, just to show that, you know, in the 25 years we have done quite a varied um, lot of things. Um, So we have enabled um, Brian Saunders uh, to write a number of the wonderful books about our environment around here. we were able to get some grant funding to assist with printing and it sort of had a bit of self-momentum by selling the books. We could then fund some more. Uh, we, had, we were um, part of the Gromi Me Instead uh, for the coastal vegetation and what plants garden escapees have become weeds in our environment. Um, And, you know, and we've done work at Kellity Bay Corner. We were involved in the Coffin Bay Rain Garden, which is just out here. That was um, around uh, nutrient inputs into the bay. Uh, uh, Crinoline point erosion control and large-scale works at Coles Point South. They are not the least of our works, but just to show you a range of projects that we have done. And of course, I guess, um, given that most of you have heard of um, Coast Care, I suspect that it's um, probably a lot to do with our current project too, which has predominantly been at Greenlee Beach. Um, And, uh, yes, a huge success. And the reason why it's a huge success is that we have been able to engage... um, a whole lot of people and um, Dominic, uh, our next speaker, asked me today, you know, why, why, how we were able to do that and I said, well, it's a much loved place. It has been the secret to that. Um, so we, this was our seventh year of doing the planting days at Greenlee and we have been averaging you know, between 100 and 150 people to those days. We had a record this year of planting 1,600 tube stock on the day and then with a follow-up day, you know, another couple of hundred. So 2,000 roughly this year. So our record and never to be repeated. (laughs) But um, the real success um, of those Greenlee days And the thing that really um, does it for me is the fact that we have families and kids and um, generational, um, you know, we have grandmothers, you know, grandparents and parents bring their kids and uh, some of those families have come every year for seven years and what a fantastic legacy to be leaving your kids. Um so part of that umbrella structure that I was talking about is where we want to go in the future. So we want to be enabling people to undertake projects um, and the way you know by sponsoring projects, as we are an incorporated group, we can assist other groups and individuals to, to undertake projects. There's also partnerships and collaborations and One of our biggest, again, at Greenley Beach has been the last two years and uh, partnering, collaborating, uh, whatever, with um, Lower Air Council. So, um, so much has happened in this space and I must say, because I went out to check on the weekend um, on the most recent works and to my eyes... It's it's a managed space now, but it's looking really good. And if you were there two years ago, and saw the impact that the increased number of campers um, and visitors were having on that place, um, yeah, it looks amazingly good. But um, what we were able to do with council was to combine our resources, um, both knowledge and funding, and to get yeah bigger bang for our Buck, I guess. The other thing that the group was able to do is have a voice. And by us talking to council, we have got camping removed from the northern end of Greenlee Beach, which um, we think is fantastic because now it's 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 an area which people can go there and access the beach and that's a day visitor. Area. So we've been able to move the camping south and um, that was a big win that council actually listened. And that's the power of groups. The other great thing, partnership we have um, is with Lake Wongari School. And this began really back the 25 years ago too. Um, you know, there was people who, you know, the nursery that was there—it's um, been a, I guess, a rekindled relationship um, in the last few years. So that school, those kids grow all our plants, uh, which grow out to, go out to Greenlee. So, um, fantastic partnership. Um, and this is where I guess. Um, We're always looking for more volunteers. We're only limited by what we can do by the number of people who want to put their hand up and and help. Um, So, you know, we're interested to hear about projects, but these are some of the ones we have on the go at the moment. Um, So we're currently doing some work along the foreshore here, um, and that is in partnership with Council and uh, the Landscape Board. So um, I have put in sort of little thingies there about indiscriminate and illegal use of herbicide Uh, and that's something that we intend to be doing some awareness program on for the next 12 months because, yeah, it's not good. Um, Illegal clearing of vegetation along the foreshore here and I'll get to why that has more impact. Um so we're also sponsoring a project around the nutrient concentrations in surface and groundwater uh into the bay. So we're looking for people who are uh, who have or know of um private bores on properties in Coffin Bay. Volunteers have been out sampling um, just recently and we're looking for some more. So if you would like to talk to us about that later, that would be great. Um, And also, you know, we can do with more people for sampling because when it rains, we need to be opportunistic about stormwater sampling. So this is all about uh, what is going out in the outfalls from the township into the bay. And the other project on the go at the moment that we're sponsoring is a very similar, you know, it's vegetation management, a lot of what we do, but in this case, uh, some residents at Little Douglas have taken up that um, a task to do that and we're sponsoring them as being the incorporated group to help them out um, with their funding. Uh, also. We have been the recipients of funding that has enabled us to have um, to upgrade the nursery at the school, so we're in a pretty good place now, um, and um, so we can start looking at other projects where we might be able to use those plants. Uh, and to that end, we are partnering with the landscape board to grow something a bit different for us, so they're more a aqua- uh, fresh, fresher water aquatic plants to go towards um, a project to plant into the Minaribi Creek and around Lake Wongari and um, they are plants that uh, will assist with nutrient uptake. So, again, um, looking to address some of the nutrient um, inputs from the creek into the bay. Um, Also, as the photo up the top shows, we can stay at Greenlee for a long, long time with our revegetation re- vegetation projects. And we have, this is sort of looking back towards Coles Point, and we have started, we've just fenced that in the last couple of weeks. And we'll have the school out there on Wednesday doing some of our erosion control work. So we're starting, yeah, a bigger scale project uh, in that area now. Um, and just because it's not all, it, you know, we do like to have a bit of fun, so and we have done that. Some of these birds, uh, um, which are replica uh, resident shorebirds, were painted at one of our Greenlee, um planting days. We uh, usually tried to have some sort of art events at those days. Um, And the others, were, which were more your migratory birds, were painted at this year's Salt Festival. Um, And we've also had birds flying in from around the state where they've been delivered around coming in from artists. So all of those birds are coming back for our events and it's a big plug here for the weekend of... October thirteenth, fourteenth, and fifteenth in Coffin Bay, we're really um, excited to be bring to be part of the SA Nature Festival this year, um, and we have four events in Coffin Bay. So, uh, we've gone through the process and we have approval to close Long Beach to be vehicles for the day. So, all of our birds are going to be uh, landing on the beach. So. Um, The birds are exact replicas. So the idea is that they are an identification um, tool. So the birds are the right size and you can look at the beaks and, you know, their distinguishing features. So the idea is to come down, look at the art installation on the beach, walk amongst this amazing flamboyant flock. Some are true to form but some are pretty wild. And then walk a bit further and actually look for the real birds because when I was down there on Friday, the little redneck stints are already here. They're the smallest of the migratory birds and they've flown in from Siberia. They say they weigh as much as a Tim Tam and those little critters flap their wings all the way. It's it's amazing. And they're on our beach down there. So um, other... other events around that day, we have a professional photographer, many of you probably know Fran Solly. Um, she will be um, leading some photography um, walks along the beach, and that'll be giving tips and tricks on um, photographing birds. So, um, we also have for three days in the hall here uh, a number of exhibitors. Um, ranging from the southern Air Bird group Australia's Reptiles for all Arch Slater is having his first little exhibition of his um, new interest in birds um, bird photography uh, we will have it is being uh, promoted as, as a multimedia display and I'm glad to say that we do have a virtual reality headset now which will enable you to dive with the cuttlefish without getting in the freezing water so um, there'll be a queue for that so and at the same time Jan Bala will be conducting their wild Yanbala tours and they will be leaving from Long Beach so um, it's the theme for the year is the nature of home and we want to celebrate and just bring people a bit closer to the nature around here so thank you for listening and um, amazingly uh, my voice didn't crack at all so thank you
0: Right. Karen, thank you so much for coming out tonight. We really appreciate it. Everybody give her a big round of applause. There go. All right. So, uh, what's going on with the oyster reefs, you might be asking? Um, I guess I should probably introduce myself. My name is Manny. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I uh, run the dive shop here in town. Uh, I see some of my former students, some, of my, some people who have come out diving with me before, and uh, just some. Members of the community who uh, I'm familiar with, so uh, good to see you all. Um, so I guess uh, I should sort of preface this whole thing. How how did this how did this whole project come about? Um, I spend a lot of my time personally looking at fish and at sea creatures, just like the ones to the left of me, um, and I spend a lot of time studying their habitats and sort of understanding what our ecosystems are made up of, okay? Um, Sort of throughout that process of understanding our ecosystems, I started to stumble upon oysters, native oysters. Um, Just looking around in the sand, there'd be little pockets all around. And uh, if you dig a little bit in the sand, you can start to find heaps of Angazi shells, native oyster shells. Um, And this led me to the question, what are these all doing here? Uh, Because I had no idea. And I did a little bit of digging, a little bit of research, and I came across some articles and some research by a person called Dominic McAfee. And uh, he's here tonight. He's about to come on up and uh, tell you all about the history of oyster reefs and how we can restore Native habitat. So, uh, everybody, big round of applause for Dr. Dominic McVeigh. Thank you. Thanks
2: for coming out, guys. Um, great turnout on a Monday. Really awesome. Great job. Uh, pardon my grimacing. If you see me in a bit of discomfort, I. Dislocated my knee about eight days ago. Last slide. Cool. Um, so I'm an oyster, no, I'm not an oyster ecologist, I'm a marine ecologist. Um, but I love oysters and uh, and I'm thrilled to be here because it's a bit of a Feels like almost coming home, coming to, to Coffin Bay, because I love everything to do with oysters. Last time I was here, I completed my wardrobe with oyster underwear. I wasn't <laughs> expecting to find that, uh, but, but I did. Um, so I do all sorts of things. I work at the University of Adelaide, and um, I do all sorts of things as part of my day job. But in particular, I've been focusing my... Um, research for the past 11 years on oyster reef ecosystems. And before I go any further, great talk, Karen, really enjoyed that, really inspiring stuff. Uh, That's what really drives me, I'm finding more and more, that sort of community-based restoration conservation work, which is needed if we're going to make meaningful change over the next few decades towards a more sustainable future. We've got these really lofty ambitions driven by global international commitments to to conservation, like the um, Conservation on Biodiversity, um, uh, Convention on Biodiversity Conservation. Uh, Australia's 30 by 30 target, 30% of degraded or or destroyed lands protected by 2030. Those are ridiculously lofty ambitions, we might be able to achieve some of it, but just with that sort of top-down government industry-led approach, uh, we're not going to achieve those those aims. So what I would like to see, what motivates me is, is sort of creating more of a culture, normalising ecosystem re- restoration, a culture where spending time on the beach conserving and and putting a bit of effort into restoring the uh, local habitat is a normal part of coastal living. Um, So I do many things, as I mentioned, but I've been particularly focusing on these two ecosystems over the last decade and a bit. Sydney rock oysters, uh, which I did my PhD on up and down the east coast of Australia, and Flat Oyster Reefs. Who, who knows anything about the Flat Oyster Reef ecosystem? Um, does anyone know how extensive it used to be? Didn't it
3: used to roll the size of the Great Barrier
2: Reef yeah.
4: across the of SA? Very good,
2: yep, yep. 1,500 kilometres along um, South Australia alone, about 7,000 around Australia. Uh, that, that's a combination of these two ecosystems. Uh, astonishing. And does anyone know about the large oyster reef restorations that are happening in the state to date? You've heard heard a little bit, thank goodness. Um, uh, So what I did for my PhD was try and understand what happens when two rub, oysters kind of rub together. When they start to grow together they they amalgamate in these really dense habitats and they grow three-dimensional three-dimensional habitat, which is really valuable for biodiversity. Um, And in terms of the flat oyster reefs, there's very few of them for for us to actually work on or or study. I also work with understanding the sensory world of the oyster larvae. This is a really important part of restoration. And I do some really weird things, like I play music to to oysters or any other um, animal that will listen. That's that's not a picture of me. (laughs) Uh, And and I do that and try and understand how oysters interpret their world so I can turn these big beautiful boulder reefs that we're constructing into restored oyster habitat and that's a process that um, uh, may well take a very long time because we're, we're just taking those first steps in trying to restore these ecosystems but it also might happen quite quickly the dramatic backdrop to all of this and I'm going to tell you a bit of a story that probably not many people not many of you have heard about tonight uh, we are in an oyster town so I'm expecting a lot of you to know uh, a bit about oysters uh, but I've been writing a story about the human oyster history how humans have interacted with oysters over the last well forever uh, for all of humankind's history and um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's been about uh, three years' worth of work. I've been thinking about it, it's been gestating for about five years. I've read 2,500 scientific papers, there's about 3,500 published on oyster ecosystems. Uh, so I'm getting there and I'll soon be able to write that story. Um, but the dramatic backdrop to the modern story is this global loss of oyster reefs. So this is a paper that was published in 2011, um, by Beckettow, et and it's basically a global map showing how we've lost the, the extent of loss around the world. We've lost eighty something like 85% of oyster reefs in the last uh, 180 years, and the only reason why th- there isn't colour around Africa and most parts of Asia is that there just isn't a lot of published literature on that with to, to mine that data. Um, Back when I was finishing my undergraduate and I was looking for an honours project to do, I didn't know what I wanted to do, I thought I wanted to cut, um, study ants or something boring like that, um, but then I stumbled across this paper it was just published about five months ago and I couldn't quite understand what this brown meant, functionally extinct, because growing up on the east coast of Australia, oysters are everywhere, they encrust all the rocky shores and pylons, they're so ubiquitous you almost don't notice them, they're like part of the fabric of, of the coast. Um, but this said that they are functionally extinct. What does that mean? How can they be functionally extinct if they're still everywhere? So this is relatively new knowledge. This was published just 12 years ago and um, it was a, a synthesis of the data at the time, but there's a lot more data. There's a lot of historical ecology research happening at the moment and it's really, really exciting. In South Australia, the baseline was published even, even more recently. In 2015, Heidi Alloway, um, a very talented scientist now with the Nature Conservancy, um, published this paper with my primary co- um, collaborator, Sean Connell, both at the University of Adelaide, showing this 1,500 kilometres of oyster reef uh, lost in South Australia. Um, and and. Uh, And that's just what we know was lost. A lot of the record keeping um, started after many of these reefs were degraded. And we can see in this incredible map, um, Adelaide's just there. Most of Gulf St Vincent was an oyster reef uh, 180 years ago. This is an 1889 oyster fisheries map. Most of the beds had been destroyed by that stage. Um, And this was a belated attempt to try and conserve a dying ecosystem. Before that, uh, pretty much as soon as Europeans settled South Australia, they started harvesting oysters and doing it really efficiently using wind-powered dredges which would scrape all the oysters from the seabed, indiscriminately moving, um, removing young oysters and, and mature oysters. Uh, why were they doing that? Well, because It was a really valuable food resource, one of the first major fisheries on the east coast and the southern coast of Australia, and also a valuable construction material. Uh, When you burn oyster shell, you can manufacture a form of uh, cement called quicklime. Um, So this baseline was only published very recently, and, and before that, not many people were aware of the extent of these lost reefs, very few people indeed. Uh, But this paper has been absolutely pivotal in changing the conversation in government and how we manage our coastlines um, sustainably. And this story uh, started, or or rather Heidi started investigating this story because she was wondering what this conversation was that was happening in in the London Parliament. This is before South Australia actually had a, a parliament in the 1850s, as to... How they were going to, um, uh, how they were going to modify rail um, locomotives that were being brought over from England to distribute incredible amounts of oyster shell that was piling up in parts of um, uh, in areas where these oyster fisheries were were, re- were really intense, and uh, much of that. 1,500 kilometres was actually worked out by looking at the amount of shell that was being removed from those areas. Very soon after South Australian was settled, um, oysters were being dredged around Port Lincoln and, be, and Coffin Bay uh, and being transported back to Adelaide. So there were, there were reefs in Adelaide, but by all accounts, the largest reefs in the state were actually in Coffin Bay and around Port Lincoln. And if... Um, if you're not familiar, there's a fantastic book for They Were fishers by Evelyn Carter. This um, discusses much of, the, much of the history. And the reoccurring theme is this idea of, an, of a, um, a, a resource that couldn't be extinguished. The harvesting was so intense and so prolific for decades and these oysters um, were so coveted that uh, they were being, uh, everybody was eating them in, in um, the new colonial city of Adelaide. Um, and they were being dredged up in Coffin Bay, Kelly Bay was one of the major sources, taken to Port Lincoln either by cart or also by, um, in, um, by sea. They were planted in Port Lincoln until weather allowed them to be shipped over to Glenelg, in those areas where they were replanted. And some of the uh, the earliest fisheries legislation laid down in Australia before... uh, Sorry, in South Australia. Before South Australia had a parliament, it was passed in the the, uh, parliament in London in 1853, was the oyster fisheries legislation to create new beds off the coastline of Adelaide and then protect those beds. It wasn't to protect the the, um, native reefs because they were thought to be um, indistinguishable. Um, And so within... by the mid-1840s, oyster beds were being established just off the shoreline at Glenelg so they could be quickly accessed to feed the saloons um, and oyster bars all through um, Adelaide. So we've had this catastrophic loss. Nobody knew that these oyster reefs existed in abundance and then... With this recognition, this recognition of this this lost (coughs) ecological history, something's changed very, very quickly. And we've gone from the idea of uh, very little knowledge that these reefs existed to, in 2015, a first little oyster reef restoration, not much bigger than a couple of these tables in Port Lincoln, 2015, as of last year we're up to about 50, now we're close to 60, oyster reef restorations across Australia. And um, the largest one in the southern hemisphere is at uh, just off the coast of Ardrossan, 20 hectares. So that's cr- constructed by taking these massive barges out and laying down huge amounts of limestone. 17,000 tonnes went into Glenelg. Um, there's Zach, one of my former honours students. And um, these reefs are beautifully constructed to to facilitate, to provide that hard substrate that was lost when we scraped all the oyster shell off the seabed. So that's really exciting work, and I'm very privileged to work on these massive infrastructure projects.
3: Why limestone?
2: It has similar chemical properties to the oyster shell. Uh, I also did some research where I looked at all sorts of different substrate, and limestone had the uh, the, the best ecological return eco- in terms of how many oysters actually settled on the limestone. Oyster shell was the best though, but in terms of hard substrate, that wasn't that was storm resistant. Um, limestone was the best, and and there were a lot of uh, local farmers um, who who sort of uh, ensured that the the limestone from their fields was actually used to lay down those first reefs because they wanted to get the limestone off the, off the paddocks <coughs> at great expense. This is um, O'Sutherland Reef, uh, 900 metres offshore. That's us arriving to work. This was constructed in 2022. We've also got one at, um, at, uh, at the Nelk. But these reefs are really hard to do. The oysters aren't so hard. Uh, as we're finding out, but people are hard. And for that reason, I collaborate really broadly with a lot of different people. I I love to work with communities. That's really what motivates me. Um, It's very exciting. I also work with lawyers. We're trying to understand um, the legislative uh, enablers and barriers to more restoration happening because permitting is a freaking nightmare, Um, understandably. I work with economists because we need to... Understand what these reefs mean for the for the economy. Um, I work with anthropologists because restoration is about is a human endeavor. It's about shared cultural values. It's about a shared vision for the future. Um, so it's really important to understand what are the human motivations for for restoration. And and I speak to people um, right up to the the. The Minister for the Environment and the opposition leader to understand what motivated them to take the huge amounts of risk, political risk, in constructing these first reefs without a blueprint as to whether it would work or not. Um, I work with artists and I work with health professionals as well because engaging in restoration, spending time in nature is good. It's good for nature and it's good for us as well. And as I mentioned, really interested, really excited by this community-led ecosystem restoration. And we're seeing a lot more of that emerging now. Um, So I mentioned the largest reef in the southern hemisphere is off the coast of Ardrossan, but at the moment, there's a group, I'm not sure if many of you have heard of, OzFish. OzFish are a national recreational fishing community focused on conservation and rehabilitation. Um, They they were started by somebody who's who's worked in the conservation and restoration space for over 40 years in Australia. And this is their flagship project um, here uh, in in Moreton Bay where they have all volunteer run. They're building tens of thousands of these gabion cages filled with sterilised oyster shell. And those are, are planted on the Moreton Bay sea floor to try and bring back the oyster reefs that were lost there. AusFish also recently started one in the Port Adelaide River and we've just received some funding to, to expand that work and also expand uh, mangrove restoration throughout the throughout the Port River. So um, AusFish is just one version of uh, the, the sort of work that, that Karen was talking about. Where you, um, it's all sort of grassroots, community-led work. And I see this as a really pivotal way of, of meeting our... our our uh, restoration targets. So why are we restoring oyster reefs? There's a couple of stories. I'm going to give you the ecological story first. Um, we've got the, had this catastrophic loss of oyster reefs, but this is just the modern-day uh, version of, of oyster reefs and, and how humans interact with them. Oyster reefs have been doing the... Oyster reefs have been um, carpeting coastlines for hundreds of millions of years, before the dinosaurs even. By the time dinosaurs emerged, oysters already looked pretty much as they look today, and they form these phenomenally huge reefs, uh, which we we know of because we have this is a beautiful fossilised reef that's about 120 million years old, and there are many examples from all around the world showing the the size and scale of these reefs and also the structure of the shell, which looks more or less identical to, to modern day oysters. We had enormous Oysters forming these gargantuan reefs. 30 million years ago, these reefs dominated large parts of the seafloor and they were being eaten by this uh, ancestor of your modern-day Port Jackson shark which would pluck these oysters with these huge crushing platelets. That's about the size of a a bus. Um, Awesome. And we can see some of these historic oyster reefs um, around our... Around our Outback, that's Shell Hill, about 120, 150 k's inland in semi-arid Australia. It's amazing to see a five million year old oyster reef and you can see where bryozoans spread over the oysters and, and where tube worms and, and polychaetes bur- burrowed into them five million years ago on the sea floor. Now they're forming habitat for outback spiders and trees, um, the ultimate ecosystem engineer. <laughs> And you can see these reefs right up to Renmark in the walls of the Murray, where the Murray has eroded. Um, the, the land, you can see oyster reefs protruding and you can see them all around uh, York Peninsula as well. If you know where to look, you can see bands of oyster reef. Really, really impressive stuff. These reefs, uh, these um, fossilised reefs, were all over that area but the vast majority of them were crushed down and mined for fertiliser. And that just that little remnant uh, is, remains. So, um, in terms of the ecology, there's probably, there's at least 11 different habitat forming by oysters um, around uh, Australia, but all the restoration effort is focused on these two because they form the majority of the of the reef habitat. Your flat oysters down the southern part of Australia and your Sydney rock oysters. and um, and uh, we're talking about something bigger than, you know, potentially bigger than the Great Barrier Reef and all the sheltered bays um, all up and down the east coast. There were oyster reefs. We know every single estuary uh, and bay in New South Wales was commercially harvested by the 1890s. So why are, we, why are we trying to bring these back? Well, because oysters are ecological superheroes. They're so much more than just food. Um, they, they provide... That three-dimensional convoluted habitat provides a lot of nooks and crannies. It's like an invertebrate metropolis, a great place to live. Uh, They're more or less like the trees of the forest or coral reefs of tropical seas. Oyster reefs are often thought of as the the temperate equivalent to to coral reefs. That biodiversity is is really key because it's the little critters that that make ecosystems tick or your your detritivores and things that that process nutrients, but they also feed higher trophic levels and um, fish productivity is the major motivator for restoring oyster reefs in in southern southern Australia at this stage. Uh, One, um, I think it's um, one's, more oysters, more fish, forget the stats. Um, uh, They're really good at filter feeding. So one oyster can filter something like a bathtub of water a day. If you multiply that by millions or billions that make up a reef, that can be a really efficient way of keeping coastal waters clean. And there's been dramatic examples of what happens when you remove those oysters, which I'll talk about later. And coastal protection. That's the major, major motivator on the east coast of Australia and in much of the U.S., um, coastal protection. Even the U.S. Navy uses oyster reef restoration to protect their coastal assets from rising seas. Oyster reefs grow faster than rising seas. But it's all about fish. Uh, I fish and I vote. Really, is very meaningful um, politically in in the state, uh, indeed all around Australia. Um, but very uh, without that sort of. Um, political pressure created by the desire for people to be out there fishing, these reefs wouldn't have been built in the state. And that's a picture I took of just one disarticulated oyster shell with tens of thousands of, of little baby fish eggs. A lot of fish will lay their eggs directly on the shell but a lot of other fish, um, including fish like snapper, will actually breed uh, above the reef and then the little babies will will live in amongst those nooks and crannies until they graduate to, to offshore habitats when they get a little bit older. They're considered fish nurseries and the association between oyster reefs is much stronger for a lot of really important fish than it is with seagrass or mangroves or other estuarine habitats. Some really good recent research out of New South Wales. Um, so it's a combination of these factors. There's, they, they enhance biodiversity by providing this habitat. They attenuate wave energy, which is really uh, becoming increasingly important. New York Harbour, they're investing billions of dollars into creating enormous oyster reefs to deal with some of those doomsday uh, tidal surges that you've seen with, with the, the extreme weather events. And, and oyster, um, before New York Harbour was the big apple, it was actually the big oyster. For a time, half the world's oysters were being harvested from New York Harbour. What else do they do? They, um, so this filter feeding function is really important because they remove excess nutrients from the water column and they cycle that to the sea floor. They suck in the nutrients, they wrap them up, Uh, and and the particles, little bits of sediment, they wrap them up in some mucousy thing and then excrete them and they sink to the sea floor fertilising the the sediment and they can encourage um, seagrass and other plant life to grow. And collectively these services have been valued over a decade ago at about 100 grand USD um, per hectare of restored oyster reefs. So potentially really valuable for the economy and and with these... uh, the the new means of monetising things like conservation and restoration. Um, You may have heard of the the biodiversity markets that are soon to be emerging. Um, I think that it's going to be difficult to try and monetise restoration. Um, It's extremely inherently challenging, um, but a lot of money can potentially come from industry for really upscaling restoration to extremely large scales. There's also the human oyster story, which I've been writing about, um, and I find really fascinating because there's few animals that have influenced human history to the same extent over such a long period as oysters. This might sound ridiculous, um, but bear with me. Oysters have a bunch of quirks that are really, uh, have been really useful. For one, they're a nutritious food that can't run away, so that means that they've been really predictable for a really long time. Uh largely being considered good risk management in terms of feeding a society, if you establish yourself near an oyster reef, uh, if you manage it properly, and oyster reefs were managed properly um, in in this country, for example, we have evidence of sustainable management over 5,000 years, and similarly in parts of the US, over 7,000 years by Indigenous communities who knew how to restock at the right time of year. They're the only animal that creates a precious gem meaning that they're extremely valuable. Um, They they also provide a construction resource, as I mentioned. A lot of the early harvesting of oysters was actually to, to, um, to manufacture cement for colonial Australia. And some of the first fisheries legislation passed in New South Wales was actually to stop the burning of live oysters because people were taking kilns right down to the water shore waterfront and they would just be shovelling reefs straight into these kilns and of course they're delicious, uh, nutritious and probably the most ethical eat meat that you could possibly eat. Um, while oysters are out on their leases they're essentially doing providing a lot of the same services that natural oyster reefs provide as well. So I'm a big advocate for eating oysters. You'll be relieved to know. Um, But oysters, humans, multiple human species have been interacting with oysters over a really long time. There's evidence of Homo erectus harvesting oyster reefs in Indonesia over half a million years ago. There's evidence of Neanderthals diving for oysters in Europe 60,000 years ago, and Homo rudofensis. I need to update this. Um, And uh, they've so they 've really left an imprint over a very long time on many different not just modern humans but multiple human species and it 's uh, quite likely that oysters played a very important role to our evolution because the bioge- the, the, geo- the, the chemistry the biochemistry of our brains um, would have required a large amount of seafood. Uh, because the, the nutritional value of a lot of terrestrial foods that we typically thought humans were eating as uh, uh, the, the savanna hypothesis that we evolved in the, on the plains of Africa doesn't quite stack up if we look at the, the, geo, uh, the biochemistry of our brains. So a very long, over a very long time, multiple different societies engaged with oysters um, uh, to varying degrees of destruction over a very long time. When humans left Africa, and we've had multiple human species leave leave Africa, uh, they invariably followed coastal routes, and the coastal routes were the fastest because they were paved with oysters. We know that because of the um, many of the, the fossilised oyster reefs that we find, but also modern or, or shell middens that go back to um, several um, hundred thousand years, and Certainly from the dawn of, or at least the mid-morning of of anatomically modern humans, we see shell middens emerging and shells being used to manufacture things like pigments, uh, not just a food resource. So this coastal highway uh, of oysters, of a globally accessible and nutritious resource, would likely have been really important for for early society, and it seems that all seafaring societies back in the day had some association, harvested some sort of bivalve. If not oysters, mussels or clams. Evidence for that comes from the uh, shell middens that are all around the world. So this is an image of um, part of whaleback shell midden. That just looks like a field, but that's actually all composed of oyster shells. Trillions and trillions of oyster shells eaten over thousands and thousands of years. Um, and once again, as we d- did in Australia, these middens were being mined um, for as, as a construction material. Some of these midden structures were quite fascinating. Uh, this is the uh, Colusa people. Um, about uh, 5,000 years ago, they started building these really large, really large shell middens. And we didn't know much about. We didn't know these even existed until uh, I think it was. 2005, Hurricane Wilma ripped a lot of the top vegetation off and we recognised that 10,000 Islands National Park was pri- was largely composed of different oyster middens. Those island- Many of those islands are actually old oyster middens. And the capital of Colusa was this fantastic um, construction which uh, was standing for about 2,000 years. Uh, it still exists but um, in a more degraded form, it was a subtidal oyster reef originally, and over time they built these middens and then these nice huts on top—incredible structures—and we see those sorts of structures in many parts of the world. Uh, this again is this is from the Carolinian coast, where oyster shells were—they weren't just the middens weren't just um, uh, refuge dumps, um, which is what we often associate them. Uh, think of them as. These are really important cultural places and used for a lot of different things. Some of these shell structures were used as aqueducts to, to capture and purify water. A lot of them were burial grounds um, and they were really important for, for rituals. Um, that down the bottom left there, that's one from Brazil. There are thousands of those all around the South, uh, South American coastline and you see similar structures like that in, in Japan and other parts of Asia as well. And, and modern midden building as well in, pa- in places like Sen- Senegal and um, some other places with very traditional oyster history um, oyster fisheries fast forwarding to more recent times relatively recent ancient Rome uh, ancient Rome and ancient Greek uh, Greece they were absolutely obsessed with oysters the the first known um, cookbooks were were filled with oysters, oysters were eaten for every single meal. Uh, And sometimes they would eat a thousand oysters in a sitting. Um, They'd down pints of oysters and then use a feather to bring them back up and then go it again, which is gross, obviously. Um, And and that intensive harvesting, of course, wasn't sustainable. Certainly at the time of the, uh, the height of the Roman Empire, all roads led to Rome for oysters. They were shipping them from Romania, Turkey, the Baltic, <coughs> and and the favourite oysters for the Roman aristocracy were, were Colchester oysters from England. How the hell did they get oysters that far when oysters can spoil relatively quickly? Um, you can't take an oyster and horse and cart that far. So they had very sophisticated <coughs> trade networks where the oysters would be, uh, taken across uh, the channel and then make their way around the French and Spanish, uh, Iberian Peninsula and uh, occasionally restocked with, with fresh seawater to make sure they were healthy. Um, the, 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 uh, and the Roman armies, they were often fueled by oysters. Even conquests into central Persia were fueled by oysters, which were transported there with ice and um, some of the earliest uh, refrigerated trade was actually to get oysters to um, these Roman armies. Um, I'm skipping a whole heap of history on oyster pearl fishing. It's one of the darkest chapters uh, in, in this particular story. It certainly is because you're talking about the, uh, a slave trade of at least 5 million uh, primarily Africans, which were sent to... Um, South America, and uh, later to the Arabian um, Peninsula, which uh, created the modern-day diasporas, where you've got a lot of African communities spread throughout um, Arabia. They were sent there to dive for oysters, for dive for pearl oysters. Really dangerous, horrible work. Um, hence the really high turnover. Uh, but millions and millions of people have been shipped across the world and the uh, to to work these these pearl oyster beds on multiple continents and slave trade for oysters was still common about 120, 130 years ago, uh, but it goes back at least five or 600 years, um, or even even longer. Uh, Pearls were being transported from Sri Lanka and India at the height of the Roman Empire all the way to Central Europe um, because they were so coveted. But uh, the Chesapeake Bay, many oyster folk will know all about Chesapeake Bay. It's... um, Uh, a very productive estuary, the largest estuary in in North America. Its watershed is enormous. It encompasses something like 15 different states. And almost all of its um, tributaries were full of oysters at the time of uh, European colonisation. The oysters were critical for Jamestown. Jamestown, the first European settlement in North America. Crops were failing, people were dying, they were starting to eat each other and they went downriver and ate oysters which got them through several bad seasons. Um, But all of these tributaries were full of oysters and for 40 years Chesapeake was supplying half the world's oysters. They were shipping them back to Europe. (coughs) They were so lucrative it led to this fascinating period called the Oyster Wars, which raged right into the 1940s, primarily a war fought between states about where state borders lay relative to really large oyster reefs, but you had oyster pirates, oyster militia, an oyster navy fighting it out, lots of bloodshed spilt on the Chesapeake over decades and decades, and a lot of slavery people were being um, uh, free settlers were, were coming from Europe, they were arriving in New York and being sent straight to work the oyster beds it would have been really nasty, nasty work um, and that's just one oyster cannery. As soon as uh, in, that's a four story high pile of oysters you can see some people up up high and as soon as they so oysters were for everyone, they were dirt cheap and as soon as they um, established a uh, uh, rail um, across the nation, and canning, then it was just absolutely relentless. The, the amount of oysters that were coming out of Chesapeake Bay it was quite astonishing. And it transitioned that estuary, that loss of oysters, and that filtration function transitioned a big beautiful estuary, which was what we call a, a pristine benthic habitat, characterised by seagrass and kelp and oyster reefs, to this murky, muddy, polluted estuary. Um, which has become quite turbid and 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 now it's choked by uh, jellyfish and and um, and other. It's transitioned from a benthic to what we call pelagic system. Um, so that's that's just a really powerful example of the functional role of these oyster reefs. they've been restoring oysters for a long time in in Chesapeake Bay because they are very traditional oyster harvesting. They they like to protect the traditional. Uh, ways of, of, of oyster men over there. So they'll restore reefs and, um, and then harvest them. And we've learned a hell of a lot about ecosystem restoration through their aquaculture work. They provided essentially a blueprint for, for our early restoration work. Um, so for 53 years they've been restoring oyster reefs in, in Chesapeake Bay and many parts of the US. Uh, but it wasn't until the mid-90s that reefs started to be restored for ecological reasons. Just one more example of the scale of these oyster reefs. That's a 24,000 square kilometre oyster reef just off the coast of um, Germany and the Netherlands, an oyster empire which is hard to imagine. When I look at a clump of oysters, a clump that big, about a you know, large baseball size, can have 1,000 different animals living in it belonging to 100 different species. When you're talking about these, an oyster reef the size of a country, um, it's hard to imagine how productive that system would have been, but in, incredibly productive. And this map is from 1883. That reef had been harvested for several hundred years already by the time that that fisheries map was made. Um, and as soon as wind, uh, as soon as um, the Industrial Revolution sort of mechanized dredging. That reef was destroyed within about uh, three decades thereabouts. and Now you won't find a single oyster there. Um, we've been dredging oysters for a really, really long time. We know um, we've got quite an accurate date because of a petition to King Edward III in uh, 1376 from local fisher folk saying please stop this, this new form of, of dredge fishery because it's destroying the oyster beds, which are pivotal to fish productivity. They had an intimate knowledge of an ecosystem that they couldn't even necessarily see because these are deeper water ecosystems. Um, and uh, and um, they didn't ban dredging. Eventually, dredging was banned in the Thames in 1557, uh, yet we're still using that dredge um, technology today in many parts. I um, don't know why I've got that slide there, just to, uh, just to reiterate how much we've lost, just taking you on a bit of a journey, these massive oyster reefs, how they've gone, um, what they, the scale they would have, they would have been, and, and it allows us to imagine you know, what we 've lost and what we could potentially gain by bringing these back. And it, as I mentioned, it was that historical ecology that created this rapid transition. So in 2014 there was an election commitment, $600,000 for some sort of recreational fishing resource. The government didn't know what it was going to be, but they wanted to provide um, a positive recreational fishing experience. Uh, And uh, that government got in. They had to do something with the money. And within a few months, that ecological baseline was published. And it was waved around and eventually circulated, socialised through the government departments. And it didn't take very long on the back of some community engagement to recognise that this was a solution that people could really buy into. And from literally um, amnesia that these reefs ever existed, within two years we had the largest reef restoration in the southern hemisphere being constructed. It's a pretty incredible story. Now we're up to five reefs. There's uh, two on Kangaroo Island that I haven't marked. Um, Glenelg Reef, that cool chromosome-looking reef, which was just fortuitous the way they built the reef, but it's, uh, uh, it's right under the flight path. If you're flying out of Adelaide and you have a window seat, look down. You might be lucky enough to see it on a clear day. Um, and I can certainly hear the planes when I'm on the sea floor, the deafening. Um, Uh, So Glenelg Reef built in 2017, 20 hectares, 159 reefs. uh, Sorry, Windarra Reef. Get the idea. So just taking you under the water, we build these, we provide these reef foundations. Um, The first reef we got wrong. We put the boulders in the water at the wrong time. Uh, I then spent uh, a few years working out, you know, when are the oysters at the greatest. uh, density in the water column what are the environmental triggers and and r- obviously learnt a hell of a lot from aquaculture work uh, showing us what sort of salinities and and water temperatures were pivotal very quickly you know when you provide that hard substrate it provides a home for a lot of different things and we have this turfing algae very quickly colonize the hard substrate that's a That's a global phenomenon on on, um, altered coastlines. We have high sediment regimes and and a lot of nutrients. And that turf gets pretty thick pretty fast. And that can be a bit of an issue for the oysters because it forms a thick layer. It captures sediment and thrives. Um, So we need to get oysters onto those reefs as soon as possible. And when we can get the oysters on there immediately before the turf takes hold, the oysters will outcompete the turf. They'll undercut it, but they need to, get, they need to find these reefs uh, as quickly as possible, or we need to maintain conditions to, to support them. So one way we do that is, um, is through something I call multi species restoration, where we facilitate healthy positive interactions between different species. So in this case, a colonia radiata, common kelp which naturally abrades the substrate. And then I've got my students here having a lot of fun on the seafloor picking up boulders. We use recycled bicycle tyres, a waste product from from, um, bike shops. We then collect those once once the kelp has actually attached itself to the boulders and we can put those down and plant little forests. And those forests then, with the wave action, they naturally abrade the um the kelp also in with shading the substrate, they abrade the kelp. Uh that with shading the substrate they remove the turf. And that can increase oyster recruitment by about twenty-six times be- between beneath these um these um these forests. But I'll just say that this forest disappeared um, in um Uh, in the late 90s, uh, water quality had degraded and we'd actually lost 6,000 hectares of of seagrass as well by the the mid-20th century. Um, And that's a major problem and SA Water spent $800 million upgrading wastewater treatment plants and improved water quality a hell of a lot. Over the last three decades, we've had 11,000 hectares of seagrass regenerate. It's coming back because the water quality allows it. And now the kelp forests. And Port Nalunga, I'm sure many of you have dived there or been there. Um, On the inside of that reef, there wasn't a single kelp blade four years ago, and now it's a thriving kelp forest. So some of these habitats can respond really quickly. As I mentioned, one of the things I do is play music or the sounds of the sea. Um, So I've recorded soundscapes associated with all these different marine ecosystems, sedimentary plains, seagrass, restored reefs and healthy rocky reefs. So oysters have a big decision to make. They can only settle down once and once they're down, they're down for life. And um, so we try to use all sorts of different cues, environmental cues, and sound is one of the most potent cues we've found because it, it moves independently of currents um, and, uh, and it's, a, it's a really sort of important functional component of oceans. We just don't really think about it that much. So in the lab we started playing different sounds to oysters and found that all the oysters, when we built a, <coughs> what we called our oyster raceway, All the oysters swam towards where we were playing the sound of different habitats and it was these more intense, uh, essentially the more red the colour, the louder the soundscape and that's kind of representative of lots of little snapping shrimp and other marine life going about their daily business. We work on a shoestring in conservation so we couldn't afford um, a lot of marine speakers so we built our own. We went down to Bunnings and and got some PVC, got car batteries, really cheap speakers, encased them inside the PVC. That's some of my students building those speakers. And we stuck them out on the reefs. And what we got was this phenomenal response where we got up to 17,000 more oysters per metre squared when we played sound. And that just meant that the oysters could find the reefs straight away, settle on them, and the turf still emerged and covered them. But within six months, that turf was completely gone because the oysters had formed habitat underneath them. And whereas it will take, it can take decades or centuries to restore an, uh, forests, you know, we are seeing this phenomenal um, recovery. This is Glenelg, and uh, this is a, a few months ago, uh, and the quality is rubbish, so you can't really see the oysters. But... The density of live, of large adult native flat oysters now exceeds that, far exceeds that of the one remnant habitat that's, that remains down in Tasmania. It, it's, it, essentially, we're, we've, we've brought back a functionally extinct ecosystem which now is thriving and we're seeing all sorts of marine life breeding on that. Um, uh, there's abalone, there's cuttlefish, there's squid. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to sort of quantify the fish productivity benefits because that really is what's going to drive the, the upscaling of these reefs. But this is a very healthy functioning reef, and I can see oysters everywhere. Um, and when you're down there, it's just mind blowing to see. So that that about does it with my oyster history talk. Um, and I don't know, Manny, if if you want to come up here and talk about the this opportunity. But um, you know, I'm always thinking about community community investment, community engagement in in, in restoration. And um, and I think there's a fabulous opportunity here if we can understand a little bit more about what the state of the ecosystem is today. You know, are there flat oysters out there? Do they, are they forming any habitat? I'm sure there's oysters out there, but where are they recruiting and when? And with that sort of foundational knowledge, there's every opportunity that we could bring back some of these ecosystems over time. It won't happen overnight, it'll take a long time, but it's really important that, that it's something that the community wants and that's why we're here to, to talk about it and to get any feedback and this is just one of many opportunities Um, I'm I'm hoping that some of you will be interested in engaging in this regularly but certainly we want to hear your thoughts, uh, whether you have concerns or whether you think it's a positive thing. Um, uh, I think first and foremost we just want to to provide proof of concept that we can bring back oyster reefs in the bay and there's many exciting ways in which we can do that and engaging all levels of society, all age groups would be uh, a fantastic start. So thanks for listening. I'm buggered. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. All right.
0: So, Don, thank you so much for coming out. All the way from Adelaide, that's uh, much appreciated. Um, so, yeah, um, as far as the opportunity to restore these reefs, um, we're sort of uniquely positioned to be um, able to do this with the resources that we have locally, right? Um, we, With the dive shop, we've got all the equipment to go in the water and conduct all the work to actually install the reefs. Um, with Dom's Wealth of Knowledge, we um, have all the, you know... Resources to know how to go about doing this. Um, as far as this project, how this is going to work, um, we've we've uh, we've gotten approval from the Department of Environment and Water to sort of carry out this project over the course of three years. Um, the first year, we're just going to be doing surveying, um, data collection, analysis of like Dom said, where these oysters are recruiting, how they're best recruiting. Um, so in this first year we're, we want to check out different sites, um, potential zones to put these reefs. Um, and we're not looking to do massive reefs like the ones that we have over in Adelaide. Um, they're gonna be a lot more small scale, um, but we'll try to do them in areas where they'll strategically grow the best. Um, and once we find, once we find out where the best places to do that is, then hopefully in the second year we can get into actually installing the reefs, um, going down and putting all the substrate down for the oysters to grow on, um, and going into the third year, continue to monitor and see what the effects of the ecosystem change changes. Uh, so that's that's kind of that's that's the plan. That's then we 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 hope that it'll work. Um, And there's going to be lots of opportunities for going and diving these reefs, um, fishing these reefs, and, um, you know, underwater photography opportunities and sort of just being able to understand how we can improve our local resources that, you know, we've, we've been enjoying for so long and haven't been doing too much about it. So I'd like to take this time to sort of do a little bit of FAQ. If you have a question for me or for Dom specifically, um, feel free to ask. Um, and I think we'll crack into that. out. So I see some hands raised.
3: Yes, so, so obviously there's been a hell of a lot of money spent on the reefs already in South Australia. Why, who's funded that? And why haven't they prioritized you know, Port Lincoln End or Coffin Bay? Why do we have to do such a small scale here in Coffin Bay, why don't we just whack in 10,000 tonne like they did at Ardrossan? What's that so special about Ardrossan? Um, I guess. mean, if we're going to cut to the chase, yeah. we're going to sit and waste three years and bugger eyes around, oh, look. bits and pieces, why don't we just whack, you know, 5,000 tonne of aggregate agri- <laughs> and then get into it? Uh, well, I why love why your enthusiasm. Says, why, <laughs> <drossan> <laughs> done? why? why can't we do it? Uh, there's yeah, there's there no reason, places.
2: other than other than funding, there is the political will in the state, there's no doubt about that. Um, Ardrossan was chosen because, for a bunch of different reasons, it was, um, it was such a pioneering project, and it looked like it was using the historical ecology, there was a lot of um, site mapping, but no real thought has been put into the Air Peninsula yet, um, and I, I haven't really been able to understand that that's why I'm here now Uh, but that conversation is changing and I imagine that there will be reefs being constructed over the next you know sometime in the next few years large-scale reefs built by the government but where that funding comes from we don't know. Um, Where's the
3: funding come from so
2: far? Philanthropy so philanthropy so um, do you know the Nature Conservancy? No. Nature Conservancy is the world's largest conservation NGO They're really good at lobbying, Um, they're politically shrewd and and very good at navigating what is a really awkward space, because it's hard to put things in the water. it has been a a long legacy of mismanagement of of coastal waters, and so government's very hesitant to, to do this sort of restoration work. The permitting is... Aligned with a developmental permit designed to prevent environmental damage rather than to promote environmental rehabilitation, so it's hard. There's a lot of loops you need to jump through. Takes six months to a year to get the permits to put these things in. So this will be a slow burn in that regard. But we've got the expertise to do it. It will come. It will come. But if and it will particularly come if the local community really wants it and they. Sh- and there's demonstrated evidence that it can happen. So that's what we're doing, I, I think. We're we're looking to provide that proof of concept, say we can restore oyster reefs here. There is enthusiasm to bring them back, and there's a lot of thought that goes into where and, and how these reefs will be restored. They need to be safe, they need to be at particular depths where people can't access them easily. Um, we want them to be fished, but we don't want people accessing the... the, the the oysters themselves and there's legislation being drawn up to protect all the reefs that are constructed but they're all open for fishing. Um, so I imagine that <coughs> large-scale reefs, we're just at the very beginning, these are pioneering projects and I'd like to think that in, by 2030 this sort of work will be quite normalised and by 2040 or 2050 maybe we'll have restored a meaningful footprint of what we lost. But it's going to take time.
3: How yeah, much? shitloads. <laughs> yeah. Which is what I'm asking about. Yeah,
2: so the nature repair markets, um, which was just, um, just launched by the federal government uh, back in March, a new market mechanism for funding conservation and <coughs> restoration, where, where polluters essentially offset some of the impacts by investing in, in, in conservation. That's probably going to be the game changer for this sort of work because there is no clear funding model for conservation. There just isn't money for, for conservation. There's a little bit here and there. It's usually on the back of catastrophes like the snapper um, the snapper bands. They're, they'll give a bit of money to, to certain groups which can funnel back into conservation. But there isn't a, a funding plan
3: at this so, stage. So you're saying that it was philanthropy by somebody who's got a... A heap of money that they not know what to do with and have
2: invested that and paved the way for the Ardrossan oyster reef project. Yeah, so it was $600,000, um, state government commitment for the, uh, as a policy offset for the creation of marine parks that displace recreational fishes particularly in that area, southern uh, Gulf St Vincent, around Kangaroo Island. So they threw 600000 to appease uh, a voting community, say it plainly. And they didn't know what to do with that. But the TNC, the Nature Conservancy, are very clever. They were able to leverage that 600000 to get a million out of the federal government. And then it snowballed from there. And, and they have very rich donors. Don't know who they are. So they um, a point, just
3: around from the <laughs> yeah, Just drawing a parallel
4: there. Um,
2: <laughs> Well, the, the reason, you know, the Glenelg grief is in David Spears' electorate. Uh, we did all sorts of site suitability mapping but at the end of the day that was a major motivator and thank goodness because it's our flagship reef it's it's perfor- outperforming any of the other reefs but so
3: that model obviously works is why i'm getting it that that's the model to, to to get galvanized everybody and everything it obviously worked it's a fantastic project Yes. Yeah. oyster
2: galvanized. reefs aren't sexy anymore though um because they were so novel that a lot of people would invest in the idea, and and the previous government, federal government, gave 20 million dollars for what was called the Reef Builder Program, <coughs> that constructed 13 reefs across Australia. But they're not going to do that again. You know, state government, state government really wants a massive restoration program, but they don't have money to do it. DEW Department for Environment and Water don't have money, but SA Water has money, so. If they build a desail plan, they might need to
4: offset that somehow. So just
0: just to, I guess, also sort of add to your question, or answer, help answer your question, um, as far as this project goes, we applied for a grant through the Department of Environment and Water's um, Citizen Science Small Grants Program. And for this project, they've given us $15,000 over three years, so it's $5,000 that they'll give us each year, and that'll go into materials, so like the mesh bags, that'll that we'll use to tie the oyster shells together um, to put down at the bottom. Um, some other, you know, um, the, like the, the um, underwater speakers, all those materials that are, is going to go into building these and constructing these reefs, that's what it's all <coughs> going for. But it's a pretty small amount compared to the other reefs that are getting done around the state.
2: Yeah. yeah. But if we can make early progress, then... That will pave the way, I'm sure, for much larger investment. And in terms of investment, um, groups like Ausfish, you know, they, I'm sure they would love to get involved. I mentioned AusFish before, recreational fishing community. They have that similar lobbying power where they have people come to them with large sums of money. Um, you know, recreational fishing licences is what historically funded most of the small projects that paved the way for these big projects in Victoria and, and in New South Wales, so yeah, it's, uh, it's but we, we deal with very small pots of money, this is about the smallest, um, the state government wasn't talking about this, but Manny picked up the phone and called me, and, and here we are.
4: <laughs> yeah, the, the stage you're at now, it sounds like you won't get wind stage. so you want to put in a reef when of that putting. In- got to be more successful, isn't it? Like, it's, it's better conditions here anyway, so that you get a win. I think... And you try to do more. And, and
2: well, Manny lives
4: here.
0: Yes. Oh. So, so I, I, think, I think a big part of, like, like picking, picking the areas is a lot of the areas that I dive um, and just being op- opportunistic about where, you know, you know where, where these reefs are in the areas that, that we have direct access to. Yeah. And for me, to come out and go dive anywhere in the bay... Take me five minutes. to drive to the shop, pick up some the gear, jump in the water. It's easy. It's convenient. Um. So to get over to Lincoln, that like I would, I would love to go and build the reefs over in Lincoln. It's. Oh, no, I wasn't it, suggesting.
4: that no, I, was I was suggesting it's your strategy to try and have a win. Yeah. 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 Get a win with a small project, yeah. and then go for
2: bigger. I'd, I'd say in conservation and restoration, a failure is still progress, though. Like, yeah. not not all reefs are going to work. I mean and we need failures to, to, to progress. Um, these are mud oysters, so they can handle really silty conditions. Mm. Um, they can take it. I was doing a recce before I came over here around Port Lincoln, looking at different sites. I reckon there's gonna be a lot of restoration work there in time, when that is, I, I don't know. But you know, these, these were the Port Lincoln oyster. Coffin Bay and Port Lincoln were where the largest oyster reefs were in the state so it's a no-brainer that there'll be a lot of restoration work here and, and we need to find the, that fundamental knowledge is, is knowing where the oysters are naturally recruiting because mm. that reduces... The, you can only do this work because if we have that data. Mm. So the first reefs um, and, and a lot of the early reefs were... They, they built the reefs and then at phenomenal expense they bred oysters and, uh, in the hatchery and, and laid them down on shell it's called spat on shell and they deposit them on the reef. That's um, a good marketing exercise but in terms of restoring a reef, you know, they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars of the budget on producing 7 million oysters to plant and in the first 3 months we had, you know, half a billion oysters naturally settle with a broader genetic diversity. Um, so finding those sweet spots is is key. And uh you know, I'd like to to start a a really a nationwide a restu- um, citizen science project where people are putting out these settlement panels to try and understand where these where these uh, reefs could potentially be built at really low cost. Um, but in terms of the silt and things like that, it's it's about reef design. You need to think about you know what are the characteristics of the reef. Do you need to get it up off the sediment, or can it be fairly low lying? Um, Yeah, it's one of the beautiful things about this this spot um, because it's such an important part of the local economy and culture.
4: Uh,
2: harvesting, growing these beautiful oysters, and then that provides the perfect restoration foundation. So all the work to date has used Pacific <coughs> oyster shells. They just there's really strict biosecurity measures on how those are managed, um, and uh, probably the flagship oyster restoration project in the world is. Is in New York Harbor billion oyster project, uh, restoring a billion oysters by 2030, and that's all restaurant um, oyster shells that are being collected. Yeah. It's a bit of a logistical nightmare. Um, here we don't have that issue, but because they've been restoring reefs for a long time over there, um, oyster shell is the limiting resource. It's the most important, one of the most important resources.
4: Yeah. You spend a long time- yeah:
0: So one, one of the nice things about living or about being in coffins and having the, the oyster industry here is that there's basically an unlimited supply of oyster shells. If you go to any of the oyster sheds around here. there's huge massive piles of these shells that have been sitting out for <laughs> ages. Um, and so I believe it's the uh, the marshals they've've uh, they've, uh, they've agreed to donate some of the oyster shells that they've got sitting on their property to go to building some of these reefs awesome. in the future um, so shout awesome. out thanks thanks very much for that yeah that's amazing well, um,
3: we've already been building oyster reefs for the last <coughs> 10 years yeah. with Angazis without illegally but but they're straight from the water and that's you know they dry out and they're straight back in again in big piles yeah. and we've been we've had terrible uh, mortality in the Angazis and they don't know whether it's or this or that there's a lot of no one's really, so we, you know, I've actually bought. I've got oyster farms in Stansbury as well. Stansbury, these are angazis from Stansbury. They come over, we send oysters back and forth on trucks. These naturally catch on our pacifics. We flick them off in the shed and then we've been planting these in the sea, in coffins to see if there's any difference. They're still angazis, but I mean, uh, you know, but whether they seem to survive better at Stansbury. Yeah. Coffins tend to die at, like, just easy. Yeah, I don't right. know why. What age? What? Uh, what,
2: what age are they dying off
3: 12, 12 months or so that be huh? some you know it, it's just weird uh, they're really happy healthy growing yeah you just don't oh. like it and then uh, you know you get the odd, I figure one here and there but they just don't seem to get colonies yeah we haven't and, uh, so you, you have heard of bonamiian yeah yeah so we that was one of never asked us he's a marine biologist he seemed to think that was one of the the main things but then again there's a bit of a Discussion that tributal tin TBT that was on the, all the hulls here that yeah. does never go stays in the substrate and washes around has mm. got a bit of an impact on that, but well, we don't know. That's just an opinion, not a fact.
2: There wasn't a single oyster in Sydney Harbour in, in 1990 when they banned um, TTP, or TPB, whatever it is.
3: Tributal tin, yeah. Yeah,
2: and within um, yeah within a decade, they're everywhere, and just come back to life. Um, I think the, the natural oysters, most of them have some sort of bonamia in them. Um, so uh, there's some great work by Zhao Zhu at Saadi and, oh. and uh, Jess Buss at uh, Flinders. She looked at benamia, um prevalence and a large number of wild oysters have bonamia, but there's a natural resistance as well. Uh, yeah, absolutely, that's a potential bottleneck that... Uh,
3: so I don't they know well it, it needs to be just a mass population of them to survive it. I don't, I don't know, because it's just Ye- only hand pockets of... Yeah. It, but they keep popping up, angassies, and then they grow,
2: and then there's... Yeah. Like, well, it's, well it's we strange. didn't know. We, you know, I dived in all those sites, couldn't find a single oyster. found one oyster, one angasi per 300 metres squared at Windra. But then you're getting tens of thousands of oysters recruiting, um, flat oysters recruiting per metre squared. You know, where are they coming from? Is it just the individuals, or there's some remnant reefs we we don't know of? Um, but that's a that sort of density that we're seeing now at Glenelg. Yeah, you, you might get ninety percent mortality, but it would be that ten yeah. percent would would be at sufficient densities to maintain the ecosystem.
3: That's probably where the research needs to happen in like what that And that could be done yep. on a small scale, but you know. Yep. So we understand it a bit better. Because we've been, we've been trying for years to grow them. Yeah. But don't <coughs> seem to crack it. But oh, yeah. mm. mm. no, they're still growing, they're still trying. Yeah. But they just don't seem to have that big population we're talking about, that big oyster reef, so, yeah. Yeah. Like the lack
4: of attachment, theory, the issue with that, whether they're attached or, or not attached, we used to find them growing giant clams. If we didn't settle them and keep them on something, they broke away, the, the clams would basically disappear very quickly in that growth process, they, they had to be secured by the
2: Bristol-3 at all, they just didn't, they just gave up, at seems, and I'm just wondering whether there's something similar there. Um, I mean, you do see a lot of the older oysters, I, I don't know, but uh, they certainly need to be attached early on, but as they grow older, it's quite common to see large adults, and I've seen some sort of that big, also in Spencer Gulf. Um, and um, they naturally fall off the razor fish or whatever they've s- settled on um, yeah. at that older age. Uh, but yeah, not sure. Could be something to do with it.
0: Um, just to add to what Lester
3: said, we've all played on oyster farmers as well. We've all played a few years with these sort of things. But for our oysters here, it, it, they seem to do quite right while they're sparse and spread out. They'll survive the remnant populations and stuff down at Black Springs we used to die when we were kids. but. As you collect them together, you lose them yep. midsummer, and yep, in every group, yeah, it just seems to be the way they work in this space. If you're going to look at try it, you might want to try your, your dense bags but you more. want to try try a broad acre, yeah. You know, it's just separate them out, and yep. they seem to be better, yeah, and survive a little longer. than if you, as soon as you bring them together, whatever the it is. The
2: So there aren't really any being grown on leases here. There's a few
3: farmers that have been playing
0: around with it. Yeah. yeah, not with a great level of success. Yeah, right. But then again, the other ones is that much easier. It? It's interesting if you if you swim anywhere in the bay, you could and I was I was with uh, Nicholas the other day, swim around, push a bit of sand off, pick out a dozen Ngazi shells this big, a giant massive ones. Um, and if you swim five meters away, check a different spot. Same deal. Ten meters away, check check, check a different spot. They're they're everywhere, right? Um, and so, as far as the the area in which they can propagate, like it, it would make sense to you know have a larger area or more spread out um, reef to to see you know where 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 they're going and to see if you know they're they do better in, in tighter clusters or larger, more spread out clusters, but that's that's just something that we're going to have to test over this over this next few years. So.
2: And uh, you grow them intertidally or subtidally?
3: Subtidally. Yeah, right. Well, i tried both. Yeah. But, but the oyster reefs themselves have tried just with, with oyster shells and putting oysters on them. Yeah. we found the same thing, get a lot of... Algae growth over the clean shells at the wrong time of the year and yeah. just smothered the the whole the whole mound. We we probably get ten ten tonne, fifteen tonne of dead oyster shells a year that we pick off on sale day, just accumulate the them in a pile and then you know look out spread them all over the bay everywhere, but there's certainly just a couple of spots that were tried and you know, because certainly they love clean substrate.
2: Has anyone dived on those?
3: Yeah, maybe. But look, yeah, some of there's been a couple, but I haven't. Look, I'm not. You no, know, look, I've been on the, the Cummins Vanilla catchment basin since for the last nearly 25, 30 years to, to stop all the sediment coming down from the Morgan's yeah. farm. But, did I say that? I mean, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, you fetched all your facts and uh, So we've done, yeah you know, we've done millions of dollars of work stopping the sediment, which has been the catalyst for for, for covering up the oyster reefs. Yeah, and our Oyster farm that in the, the mouth of the Coffin Kelly Bay and Coffins, is the reef is down about three feet. Uh, our oyster post we put them in, we hit it, and my workers absolutely hate it. it takes it forever to get through the, the reef, mm. and, then they, and then the post will go through and they're fine. Mm. So that's that's just covered with topsoil from back when they cleared the land and worked it, worked the paddock seven times before they sowed it, mm. and they cleared all the trees, and it's all down here in Kelly Bay and just washes around the estuaries. Mm. So you're never going to uncover all that sediment to the old reefs. But they're there. We've seen them and yeah. we felt them. But, um, yeah, it's a big job. That's what I was saying about let's just get in a heap of rock and just start putting, you know, but not all over but, you know, some decent, you know, good, you know, five hectare blocks or something like that and give it a good crack because then you'll, you'll know. Yeah. I think.
0: Yeah. It'd be, it'd be cool to do that. Be, <laughs> we've got, we've, got, we've got the
3: boister boats. We can cart tons and tons. It's just about getting the funding for rock and someone actually put a site down and say no diving, or no tape, or whatever you call it. Yeah. I suppose. Mm. And there's a lot of bays. Dutton Bay is probably one of the better ones. No, Not as much sediment in Dutton, I don't reckon. It's, uh, there's uh, barely any sediment bay. around
0: there. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a lot of seagrass, which ha- also has its own complications with government. Yes. Um, so they don't like it when you mess with the seagrasses. No, you can't go
2: near seagrass.
0: Nah. Mm-hmm. No. Mm. But... Yeah. Any other questions?
1: What music do, you, do they grow
0: to? Barry White. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
3: uh, uh,
2: they, uh... uh we, we've played, yeah, all sorts of different, um... different music. ACDC works for bass... Um, is, is really important, the bass or, or the loud, frenetic music. Um, just like, uh, maybe you've seen that experiment playing hip hop to cheese creates the funkiest cheese. It's not dissimilar <laughs> to, uh, not dissimilar for oysters. But yeah, we've got to try a few more. We haven't tried Mozart or anything yet, Just so. <laughs> on the funding side, I think there's
4: the line, of think the name got Bay the bag of any value in that process. So I lived in Cairns for 30 years, and, um, someone said
2: Coffin Bay oysters, but they just had knock each other over to get to them. And yeah. that's, that's an avenue down the track for chasing funding through that main recognition? Absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <coughs> I was I used to, uh, I was in Hong Kong for a while, Hong Kong U. I was teaching an aquaculture course there and we brought oysters from all around the world. And the Coffin Bay ones were far and away better than any, and people knew locals knew about them, yeah. obviously from France and England, so yeah, there, there's a lot of weight yeah. behind that name, and from a th- philanthropic um, <clears throat> point of view, I think so, yeah, but government's not going to give any money, <coughs> just, just be clear on that, <laughs> so yeah, we need to need to find creative solutions,
3: yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> if you make enough noise, <laughs> 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 just put <what's> it in, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh,
2: you know, desal de- <laughs> plants and things like that are, are um, you know, any politically sensitive project uh, opportunities for, for conservation leverage.
3: Just a question, Manny. The, I was interested in that triangle basket, the mesh basket in the background there with the dead oysters, the, the shells in there. Mm. So uh, do you, what do you do with that mesh after you go and take that out, does that stay there for a the day? It
2: lasts for two years, depending on the gauge, and then it corrodes away.
3: Because we've got oyster baskets by the tens of thousands that are, they've just got a few cracks in them here, and we, we, we discard them, and we've been chipping them up and getting rid of them, but hell, they would make fantastic. Yeah, t- plastic ones. That's the thing, that's what I'm saying, But they, they would not, they would last for a very long time. Yeah. But, but, that, but there's a huge resource that's here that would
2: do very good for thing. experiments um, not for reef building the government wouldn't have a bar of it these are some of the different solutions so that is a um, biodegradable plastic, it's made out of cellulose yep. um, that we're looking at, at trialling, but in terms of the rigid structure, this is what um, Ausfish are using up in, uh, up in Queensland and it provides just a really good amount of structure and by the time that metal's corroded away the oyster, the oysters have consolidated, that's what they're finding, they've consolidated a, a solid unit. Um, so it's, I'd rather not use metal, but um, at this stage, it's, it's definitely a, a good solution. That's working really well it's working really well
4: there. look at that model. it was featured a while back over there. Yep. So you might be able to pull back online mm,
0: there, there's, there's some resources on YouTube to, to listen up to, that you, can, that you can watch about the reefs that they're doing out there. Um, and I think the, the statistic that they were pulling was for every hectare of reef They were getting about two and a half tons worth of fish stock per year, which is insane mm. Heaps of fish.
2: Yeah, I've got some flies for Ozfish. So I work quite closely with them um, and uh, They they may well Come over here. I think with the opening of BCF who are the major funders uh, there's a good chance there might be a chapter starting in Port Lincoln. And they'll. some of the flagship projects are the oyster one, um, and that aims to be the largest oyster restoration in Australia. Uh, but also seeds for snapper, maybe you've heard about that, where people walk along beaches and collect Posidonia seeds that have washed ashore. They need to be collected within three or four hours of them washing, washing ashore. And then we plant those seagrass seedlings. Um, and, and restore seagrass habitats, so. uh, but Ozfish do all manner of different projects, um, but it's just a good way of, I think, uh, you know, a lot of recreational fishers do spend a bit of time doing habitat conservation. Uh, seven, according to some research, 17% of recreational fishers spend at least some time e- each year restoring or working in conservation projects, but it's about half the global average in Australia. Uh, for various reasons. So that's something that hopefully we can change because we're talking about a huge population. Yeah. You talk about Um, Not directly, Uh, there would be indirectly, so in terms of direct tourism opportunities, the vast majority of reefs that have been constructed in the US, and so the US is this far ahead of everyone else, and then Australia is is probably running second and, and Europe is catching on, there's 14 countries getting behind it, Asia as well. Uh, But all the reefs in the US to date have been in really murky water, so they're not not really conducive to diving. But Glenelg Reef, for example, has recreational divers in terms of that direct tourism output. Um, And there could be all sorts of opportunities for glass-bottom boats, you know, when you have... So I was diving a couple of weeks ago before I bugged my knee on Glenelg, and I'm diving with squid and cuttlefish and... Um, phenomenal uh, benthic life huge crabs it's a really interesting system yeah ab- absolutely um, and uh, so there are opportunities but if you talk about indirect opportunities massive and um, billion oyster project I mentioned in New York harbor you know, New York's such a um, marketable thing in and of itself and there's uh, there's, there's Gin breweries creating oyster gin for the restora- associated with the restorations and, and oyster beer and um, they have a lot of uh, indirect I think the funding drives um, but yeah there are a lot of opportunities for divergent economic outcomes
0: one one of the one of the and just to be sort of transparent about this as far as the tours that I offer to tourists coming, coming into coffins when they want to go see, check out the different local sites. Um, One of the things that, you know, we could be doing is taking photos or um, doing fish count surveys or, um, you know, putting out our substrate panels to, you know, collect oyster growth. So as far as, as far as that goes, there are opportunities to, to offer tours to actually, you know, take part and to, to to give a hand in conservation work. So, yes, yeah, like there is
1: like eco tourism
0: totally stuff. right. And it's 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 circling back to those opportunistic or being opportunistic about you know you're in the water, you can get the work done, and people people love it. It's like you know tourists come in and they if they want to help, um, they want to have those experiences, and uh, they want to. Give they want to give value rather than just like doing you know just having a look, right? So it's a it's a it's a it's a lot more there's a lot of value in that.
3: Yeah. And, um, one last thing, but I just remembered the um, the bay has changed a lot too in the last uh, mm-hmm. probably five years with the razorfish um, infestation if that's the right word but it's just a natural thing that I think that's happened but what that that is a very it has been used in other areas as a substrate for grand gardens for oysters to spat onto. And I'm just wondering, because, you know, the best oyster places are where the best razorfish beds are, and I just wonder whether in time we're going to find, as razorfish are dying, and, and whether they actually turn into hosts for the Angasi population.
2: It's the first uh, place I'd look.
3: Cer- certainly, certainly in some of the farms we've got outside the Douglas, just just every razorfish has got an abalone on the side of it. Mm-hmm because they don't, they need a clean place to graze on. And it's supposed to be a boon for abalone mm. out there. But I just wonder when they start to die, when they, the, the insides, will, like whether the anguazis will get in there, have the protection from their predators and then they can, and then maybe take off. So that'll be, so it might happen naturally anyway. Yeah. Potentially.
2: Yeah, so razor fish Razorfish was the sort of the last stronghold for flat oysters with the removal of all that hard shell substrate. Um, it was the only real hard substrate out there, engulfed, certainly in Gulf St Vincent, which is very sandy bottom, and you know transitioned from multiple different shellfish habitats, massive hammer oyster reefs, for example, in the 50s, all gone, um, Transition to sort of sedimentary seafloor. So the, the razor fish have been critical, and that's where we find, that's where I suspect the oysters that are seeding our reefs in gulfs and vincent are uh, living there probably on the side of razorfish we, we might see
3: in the next five years uh, a bit of a change there then Gazi might take over and take on the yeah. razorfish because there is zillions about there now oh. after what there was five years ago probably. yeah
2: I, I often find dead razorfish full of um flat oyster juveniles yeah There's actually
3: quite a lot of um oyster
2: Mm. Native flat oysters,
4: yeah, as far as I know.
2: Yeah, whereabouts? <laughs> <laughs> so at
4: the National
3: Park, you um, follow the full drive track out. And as soon as the track starts running next
4: to
0: the beach, you can mm-hmm. go on the beach there. And I'll fence a heat there. Yeah, not long after I make it. I'll tell you that. I know, yeah, I don't
4: know about this
1: one. Just as you go I, I it. in, it's is it Pacific yes. is, is it, or is it... No, no, not flat Angazi. Yeah, right there in the corner where the, the um, yeah, like when he said where you first come to the water. Uh, I go sea kayaking a lot, and every time I go out there, there's more and more. Just about every razor fish has got a little Angazi on it. Wow. And it's in really shallow water,
3: isn't it? Well,
2: and, yeah. A... Yeah. and uh, Pacific oysters are they forming habitat? Are they...
3: a bit, yeah. here and there yeah. Yeah, not it off. they don't seem to have taken off as much as we thought we, got, we have a bit of a clean up every few years and try and kill as many as we can but the razor fish have made it virtually impossible to, to do that but if the Angazis can get in there and get a foothold that will be fantastic
0: yeah hmm. uh, Tilly? So we're we're gonna start probably in the, in the in the coming months as the water warms up. That's we'll we'll go out and put out. It's basically it's billboard. We've got you know these these panels cut out, um, just cement board, and we've uh, got them secured to posts, and we'll go and hammer them around. So if you guys do happen to see these little square um, cement panels, um, sediment panels with a stake tied to it. Uh, if you do happen to see them around, please don't pull them out. <laughs> um,
2: if, if anyone wants to put them even on your oyster leases, that would be magnificent. Just yeah. to get an idea, a sense of um, you know, where the oysters are, are recruiting and mm-hmm. at what densities.
0: Um, but yeah, we'll be going out, and, and when the water starts warming up. Right now, it's about fourteen degrees, and I believe it's about eight.
2: S- yeah, eighteen, seventeen, eighteen.
0: It's about seventeen, eighteen when uh, their spawning cycle's kicking, um, and so. When the water is gets up to 15, sixteen, seventeen, we'll we'll go out and um, and we'll pu- we'll put some stuff out on our social medias. We'll spend spend a couple days just going around diving a site, do few sites and putting those in. And yeah, so there there will be opportunities to, to go out to to do that to start to collect the data. So yes.
1: Cool. Yeah. And many are you going to create any sort of online presence around this project so that
0: interested or want to volunteer or or yeah so so with 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 use of our like social media channels all that we'll be we'll be putting things out there um we'll have sort of as as it gets a bit closer to those days that are happening we'll uh we'll we'll put the word out um and we'll have uh, volunteer days basically where if people want to come out and dive um, we'll provide all the gear and have all the resources ready so they can they can just jump in the water go for a dive Help out, give a helping hand with putting some putting some stuff in, or taking some photos, or doing some surveys, and uh, yeah. So that's 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 basically just gonna be on our social media stuff, social media channels. So on our Facebook, Instagram, all that website. Yeah, and we put like our details down somewhere, like like an
3: email phone number, so like you send out like
0: an email list or when you're doing events. Right? Ab- absolutely. Um, on the table right there, there is our uh, we got our business cards. Um. Phone number is on my personal phone number is on there. Feel free to text me. I'm probably gonna regret saying that later. But, uh, <laughs> feel free to do that. My email is there as well. Um, but um, yeah, I th- best best way um, if you are interested in, in that is yeah just follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and uh, keep up with sort of what we're doing because it'll be yeah we'll we'll be sort of probably we'll kind of try we'll try to give people as much notice ahead of time as we can. Um, but yeah, if you just follow us on there, we'll we'll uh, put the good word out. But yeah, we will have a uh, a newsletter going out for people who are specifically interested in this project. So, yeah.
3: One more question for Dom: uh, Is the Agazi the best? No, is that the best oyster in the world to be here? Because there's obviously a heap of different varieties of uh, subtitle. Oysters around the world. I think there's an oyster virginica in the
2: on the uh, east coast.
3: Yes. Yeah, that's and more that, of a. Because we're all a bit concerned about, right, you know, temperatures getting a bit of water in the and so on, such. But do we? Is the Anghazi the best one? I suppose I'd get that for for the. Was the, there been any trials in different genetics and anything like that? Or is that just not even on the table?
2: No, not really, because of its commercial viability. So not many people invest much in Pacifics, uh, sorry, in um, uh, In 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 Angassi relative to Sydney Rocks and and Pacifics. Uh, But it's a really tough oyster and and, um, I suspect that it is probably the best candidate because you know, these are oysters that have formed habitat for... For tens of thousands of years on on this particular coastline, Um, and uh, you know, if we if we don't harvest them, but we can regenerate the habitat, yeah, they have the genetic toolkit. I think to deal with these conditions, because these oysters could settle down to about forty meters or almost be intertidal, so they have this capacity to deal with massive environmental variability. Interesting oyster. So oysters around the world. I mean, Austria, you have very similar um, genetics among Austria all around the world, and the flat oyster in Europe, um, Austria edulis, is almost genetically indistinguishable from Austria angasi. So there probably hasn't been too much called divergent evolution because they have that really broad genetic toolkit they've been doing this for hundreds of millions of years there's differences between estuaries but genetically they're very similar even though those european oysters have been separated from these oysters for god knows how long is there
0: anything
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm always whenever I'm on the shoreline, I'm looking for evidence of of um, flat oysters, and uh, you need to have a bit of an eye for that. There are some ways you can tell. Uh, I've been doing it probably for too long, so I can I can I can tell. But um, that that would be very handy, you know, just observations, and maybe that's something we can yeah. sort of post on the on the website. Different opportunities to feed back any information. Like that, you know, oysters on razorfish over there. That's that's solid gold for us. So yeah, if you're out in the field, out and about, absolutely keep an eye out for things.
4: <laughs> yeah,
0: photographs. Yeah. Cool. Any other questions? How
3: much? Like, what? How much have you got approved for to actually like a big? Been
4: approved to make a rate or is it just the
2: trials of this? Yeah, so yeah. this is all very new. Um, so, step one with the restoration conservation project is community engagement, see if people want it. Uh, and we will start the permitting process pretty soon, knowing that it will take a long period of time.
0: So, there's the things that we'll do sort of in the meantime, right, to get it going. Um, but yeah, like I'm saying, it's, it takes ages. Government approval, politics,
2: which is not a bad thing. Um, I mean, it, it will be annoying as we're stepping through the process, but I do work with some lawyers who are keen to help, so that will yeah. make life easier. Um, but we, yeah, we need to learn about. you know, there's a lot of baseline information we need to know before
0: reefs go in the water. Yeah, you gotta start somewhere. So yeah. that's that's what this is.
2: So thanks for, thanks for coming out and supporting the idea. Um, it's sort of really just grown from a phone conversation and uh, it's grown quite quickly. We've got this little grant, a little bit of money, um, but these sorts of projects are driven by just a few champions. So the more support and the more people are, are prepared to invest their time and energy, um, the better, because you know, if Manny hadn't picked up the phone, this never would have happened. Uh, and, yeah, we'll try and make something good happen soon.
0: Yeah, thanks so much, everybody. Appreciate all your time.